turning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 4. 1 Peter, chapter 4. We'll look together in the time we have together, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'm not a big fan of this skipping around in biblical text approach to preaching, mind you, but we have chosen to focus for this 40-day period of time, a season of prayer and fasting, to focus on these four themes that sort of hold together our 40-day emphasis. We talked in week one about abiding in Christ. We looked at John chapter 15, and Jesus says, I am the true vine, and he teaches us that the secret to being fruit-bearing followers of Jesus is to be branches that abide in the true vine, that Jesus by our abiding in him, is producing in us much fruit. Abiding in Christ, simply remaining in him, walking with Jesus, is at the heart of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is not something that we do on Sunday morning or at certain intervals of our life or certain aspects of our life where we abide and certain aspects of our life that we keep to ourselves. No, we are entirely bound up in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We talked in week two about connecting and the critical importance of being connected to the body of Christ. But more than that, being connected to smaller groups, to small groups even, connect groups within the body of Christ. We have learned the hard way through a season of quarantine and isolation, this incredible and innate need that we have to enjoy fellowship one with another. The very first observation that God, the creator of mankind, made concerning man was this. It is not good that man should be alone. And this is ever true within the context of the Christian faith. It is not good that we would operate independently. We need one another. We need the fellowship of the church. And even beyond the corporate assembling of the church on the Lord's day, we need the gathering of ourselves together that love and good works would be stirred up in our heart. This morning, I want to talk to you about serving. You'll see that theme. It's apparent in your 40-day booklet that I hope that you're working through. We have two themes left this morning, serving, and then next week, sharing. We could have just as well said serving and let that be the third and final thing that sort of envelops the idea of sharing as well. But serving, as we put it this morning and as it's structured in your booklet, is really about service within the context of the body, serving one another which is hand in glove with what Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Much of what has come before verses 7 through 11 in 1 Peter has been focused on how the church interacts with the world around them. But here in verses 7 through 11, Peter focuses exclusively on how it is that we interact one with another, how we focus on serving one another within the body of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, beginning in verse 7, Now the end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and disciplined for prayer. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others 
as good managers of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his words. You may be seated. In the writings of the Apostle Paul, describing the church, Paul uses the human body as an illustration of how we function together in unison. He says, we are members of the body of Christ, each a distinct member. He even describes some of those members, hand and foot. He talks about the less glorious members of the body and their critical importance to the body's ability to function. We're familiar perhaps with that illustration. All of us with a unique function within the body of Christ operating in unison that the body may operate optimally so that we can be at our best. We've experienced in life by natural experience, we know the critical importance of every member of the body operating, functioning as it ought in order for us to be what we ought to be as a body. The smallest member, smallest appendage can debilitate the body. Stump a toe in the night, You'll find out quickly how critically important the smallest appendage is to the body's proper functioning. But in the writings of the Apostle Peter, he uses the illustration of the household. He says in 1 Peter that God is building up a household. We are in one instance living stones being compiled together, building up this house, but he takes a more spiritual approach to that illustration or metaphor in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Within the household of God, if things are to operate as they should, if we are to be what we are to be, there's a certain series of steps, actions that Peter calls us to here in our passage. In verse 7, Peter says, Now the end of all things is near. This very simple and straightforward statement from Peter at the beginning of this paragraph adds a note of urgency to everything that Peter says after this. Now the end of all things is near. Peter in his own day could see the signs of the times being fulfilled. And surely if Peter could say nearly 2,000 years ago that the end of all things is near, we could say in unison this morning that the end of all things is nearer now than it was then. The signs of the times have been fulfilled. There's an air of urgency about gospel advancement. Peter says the end of all things is near. And because of this, we ought to be assured that we are serving as best we can with great fervency and earnestness that the nations might know that Jesus Christ is king. Because the end is near, it is incumbent upon us that we serve and that we serve diligently and that we serve faithfully. The end of all things is is near adds an element of urgency for the congregation under Peter's care, but it adds an element of urgency for our congregation as well. Indeed, the end of all things is near. I get a healthy chuckle at times out of the reading of the signs of the times in our day and age and the various predictions that are made. Most of them sound foolish and silly and are so out of step with the Bible, I'm not sure where they come from. 
But there can be no denying that the signs of the times indeed have been fulfilled. It seems apparent to me that all we are waiting on at this juncture in history is that the gospel would be proclaimed among all nations for the father to turn to the son and say, Son, go and get your bride. Indeed, the end of all things is is near, and because of this, there is urgency about the mission and the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. Peter says, because the end is near. Therefore, he says, be serious and disciplined for prayer. It, it reads as one phrase, but there are really three, three ideas here that are being conveyed. Be serious. That is, don't be lackadaisical. Don't be indifferent. Don't be careless, but be serious. He uses similar language when he speaks of our need to be watchful of the devil who prowls about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be serious. Be aware. Don't be flippant. Don't be careless, but be cautious in the present hour because the end of all things is near. Be serious. And then Peter says, be disciplined. There's an interesting background on the terminology that, Paul, that Peter uses here for the idea of discipline. It's born in classical Greek out of a political conversation. Someone who was disciplined or balanced in this way had the ability to sort of balance and be diplomatic with regards to the various political disagreements that existed between the common people and the elite or erudite class. Be balanced, he says. Be serious, because the end of all things is near. Be be serious and be disciplined. Be balanced. Be sober-minded. Be level-headed. All of that is packed into what Peter describes here in our passage. Be serious and be disciplined for prayer. Prayer, in this sense, is born out of our seriousness and discipline. If you're serious about the present hour, coming to the realization that the end of all things is near, that will drive you to your knees in prayer. When you see the present condition of the world around us, the natural spiritual response is to pray. Be serious for prayer. Be disciplined for prayer. When you come to terms with how difficult it is to be diplomatic, to be balanced, to be sober-minded, to be a person of reason in this crooked and perverse generation, the natural spiritual response to that is to be driven to our knees in prayer. Be serious and disciplined for prayer. In verse 8, Peter says, above all, maintain an intense love for each other. Not just maintain love not a nominal love, not a degree of love, but maintain, Peter says, an intense love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another and love one another well. Remember, we're talking here about the church within the context, the framework of the church. Maintain an intense love for one another. This is the foundation of service. This is why we serve, because we love God and we love our neighbors. We are compelled to serve within the context of the body. We want to be of service to our brothers and sisters. We want to love them and to love them well. Just a note here. I think sometimes we, we think in all the wrong terms with regards to service within the church. We think about big things that are happening, want to serve in that context, and then we think about this sort of normal Lord's Day activities of the church, and those are of lesser value. 
This Sunday morning, we're gathering after a week that was just phenomenal with our GIC here. I, I left every night with my heart so full. And I believe Jesus was greatly glorified in our meetings together this week. That's kind of a big thing for us. But I, I want those of you to know who are serving within the context of the body that this morning will be a bigger deal for somebody than GIC ever thought about being last week. For somebody, today will be the day they bow their head and heart and trust and believe in Jesus. For somebody, today is the first time that somebody has come into the fellowship of our church who's joined together with our assembly. Service matters even within the context of the church. Now, Peter says here, love one another with an intense love since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, there's sort of a theological approach to this proverb, love covers a multitude of sins, and then a more practical understanding of that verse. In a theological sense, it is certainly true. Love covers a multitude of sins. We might unpack that this way. God has loved the world so much that he saw fit to give his only son. And the son loved us so much that he would lay down his life at the cross for the joy, for the love that was set before Jesus. He endured the cross, rose again the third day, that by faith in him his blood might atone for, might cover our sins. Surely love covers a multitude of sins. But there's a practical understanding of this verse as well. Love covers a multitude of sins in the sense that we often overlook the sins, the prickly parts, the problems, the hang-ups of the people that we love the most, right? We've seen this in recent weeks politically. I'm going to stay a gazillion miles away from our presidential election, trust me, but here's what I've observed. If, if you are for candidate A, he can do no wrong. In fact, if there were a vacancy in the Trinity, you might have him promoted. And if you hate candidate B, he can do no right. If the devil takes off a day, he can fill in. <laughs> this is the way it works, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. On perhaps a less controversial level, the same is true with our favorite sports teams. If you love your team, they can do no wrong. It matters no bad, no ma it makes no difference how bad it was yesterday or the Sunday before. There's a world championship just around the bend. Love covers a multitude of sins. If you love the church, if you love your brothers and sisters, it will be much easier for you to overcome the frustrations that are born out of your interactions with them, and the frustrations will come. You just look at the makeup of the church. It ought to be so that every healthy church is comprised of people who are at a variety of places in their journey with Jesus. It's exciting to be with and to be around new believers and their zeal. I think of myself in my early walk, lots more zeal than wisdom, fired up about Jesus, and somehow within the span of a few short weeks, I had it all figured out. If you didn't believe it, you could have just asked me. I would have told you. And sometimes young believers can tend toward legalism. They need everything worked out just neatly. Sometimes new believers can be a real pain, you know? And the joy of older believers who've been walking with Jesus for decades, perhaps the overwhelming majority of their life, is the ability to glean from their wisdom, to sit at their feet, to be taught and to be trained by them about their experiences. But sometimes older believers can be bullheaded and stubborn. 
Can you bear witness to that? What I'm, what I'm driving at here is that all of us are sinful people with our hang-ups and our snags, and sometimes we can be difficult to embrace. But brothers and sisters, love covers a multitude of sins. And a deep, abiding, intense love for the body of Christ will be quite beneficial to you in overlooking some of those shortcomings. It's also a reminder to us that we need to be careful where we set our affections. This is why Paul says that we ought not be bound by our affections, by our affections believers being yoked together with unbelievers. What relationship have the righteous with unrighteous? You bind yourself by affection to those who are not walking with Jesus, and it'll be very easy to begin to make compromises theologically and otherwise to accommodate the decisions that those you care deeply for are making. Love one another with an intense love, the Apostle Peter says, since love covers a multitude of sins. In the old days, with that group of knucklehead boys I ran around with as teenagers, we, we, could, we could fight on Friday, and we often did, and then be best friends on Saturday, and we often were. I've reflected back on the insanity of those years and the crazy dynamics of those friendships and in a weird strange sort of way i wish sometimes the church could get with that the the ability to have hearty disagreements on issues about which we are deeply passionate without losing sight of the fact that we are brothers and sisters bound together by the spirit of god Paul says, maintain an intense love one for another since love covers a multitude of sin. And then what I believe is an extension of this expression of love. Paul says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Hospitality is the idea of being friendly, being benevolent, providing for the needs of someone who is under your care. I, I think hospitality involves someone being familiar with the inside of your house and you being familiar with the inside of their house. This is more than a Sunday morning exchange. This is living life together. Be hospitable toward one another without complaining. Now, we've talked about this idea at times in the past where it was customary in the first century, if you were a Christian, especially a Christian preacher, you could presume upon the grace and the hospitality of other believers no matter where you went. You would come into the city, identify yourself as a Christian, as a preacher of the gospel, and you could expect to be helped, to be aided in your ministry by believers who were there. Now, it, it doesn't take long for us to imagine some ways that that might be taken advantage of, that that might be abused, that might be a, a, a feature of the culture that although helpful under most circumstances could be greatly taken advantage of by those who had uh, less than the best motives. So Peter says, not just be hospitable, this comes natural, it's customary in the culture. He says, be hospitable without complaining. When the company shows up too late, Peter says, be hospitable without complaining. When they show up and they don't bring anything to contribute to dinner, be hospitable without complaining. How about when they show up and they stay way too long? Be hospitable without complaining. If you do meaningful ministry for very long, you're going to be taken advantage of and even abused. 
It's just resign yourself to that reality. But know that that's, a, that's a, almost a necessary part of doing meaningful ministry. You've ministered to people, they don't get the social cues, they don't understand how things work, they're operating in a different cultural framework, and it can be frustrating. Well, it can be frustrating, right? But Peter says, be hospitable without complaining, bearing with the shortcomings, the struggles, and the difficulties, and the challenges that come with hospitality. Do so without complaining. Now, verses 10 and 11 really get to the heart of what I want you to hear this morning. Y'all ready? Verse 10 says, Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. Simply put, every person who has believed on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin has been gifted by God with a spiritual gift, which is to be managed by using that gift within the body of Christ. God has supernaturally gifted you to do something within the body to which God has called you. And if we're going to be our most efficient, our most effective, have the greatest gospel impact in the world around us, it will be not because we have operated to the heights of our natural ability, but that we have recognized our inherent weakness and have operated in the power of God's great spirit, utilizing the gifting that God has supernaturally given us. It's clear here that Peter is not talking about natural talents and abilities. You all have natural talents and abilities, some of you more so than others. And you may use those talents and abilities in the service of the church. But what Peter is describing here is a supernatural capacity for service that every Christian person enjoys by the presence of God's Spirit in them. Peter says again in verse 10, based on the gift each one has received. Not everyone receiving the same gift. Each one has received a gift. Be good managers or good stewards of the varied grace of God. In the same way, God has entrusted to you a certain measure of financial blessedness. God has entrusted to you this spiritual gift and we have been called upon to manage what God has entrusted to us. Now, Peter says the way to be a good manager is to utilize that gifting in the service of others. Now, we're not even talking about the world around us at this point. We could very well talk about utilizing our gift out there. We're talking about the household of God. Use your gift in the service of those around you. You have been gifted. And the strange and disappointing thing about so much of American Christianity is that the vast majority of Christians that I talk to don't even know what their gift is. We've been sucked into this consumer approach to Christianity where we come and we, we sit down and we're pumped up or we're entertained and then we dismiss for the week feeling a little better about our place in life, never coming to realize that what God has called us to do or to be as believers is to serve one another. We come to give away. We come to give away to be in service to the body around us and even in service to the world around us. Be a good manager of the gift that God has given you. Now, we have resources in place, and our pastors are ready this morning to talk with you about what your gifting might look like to help you discern what that gifting is. 
But you must know this morning that you have, as a believer, been gifted by the Holy Spirit of God to do what you and you alone can do within the context of this local church. If we're going to be our best, it'll be because you discern the gift of God in your life and you exercise that gift liberally within our body here. I think this is critically important because, again, we're not talking about natural talents and abilities. This is clear. In verse 11, Peter says, If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. We're not operating in our natural ability, and some of us have natural abilities. Some of you have remarkable natural abilities. In fact, I think it's a very dangerous thing to operate in our natural abilities at times when it comes to Christian ministry. I think one of, one of the reasons we see this explosion of immorality among preachers and pastors and Christian leaders in our country is because we have identified those within our congregations who have natural abilities to the neglect of those who have been spiritually gifted by God. And so when as the result of sin, the Spirit of God departs that person and they begin to wonder, you see no diminishing of their ministerial capability because it was never spiritual in the first place. It was always natural. What we need now more than ever in the world are men and women, boys and girls, who in their natural weakness would speak with spiritual strength the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the world would believe that he and he alone is king. This is not about your natural ability. And there are times, many times, in fact, when your natural abilities can get in the way of you being what you might be spiritually, because you're propped up on your natural strengths, failing to come to the realization that indeed we are weak, but when we are weak, he is strong. This is a, this is a spiritual, a supernatural gifting that God gives. So that Peter says, he who speaks should speak as though he speaks the words of God. And the one who serves, serves not in his own natural strength, but in the strength that God provides. So the idea that we don't have the energy, the stamina, the strength, the ability to serve in various ways is just nonsensical. In fact, it's then, it's then that God is greatly glorified through Jesus Christ, given the way he has gifted us to do what is beyond our natural ability. So many ministries and so many churches, so many individuals never rise above their natural ability because they're uncomfortable beyond that. When what God has promised is to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything that we could hope or think or ask or imagine, God has promised to work through us as we acknowledge our weakness and his great strength. Be a good manager of the gift that God has given you, recognizing that you have been gifted. Use your gifts for the service of those around you and the seeking out of the lost. When we serve this way, the Bible says that God is glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. That to him belongs the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Yesterday, you watched your favorite college football teams. I'm, I'm, I looked out in the 815 service. I see a few dead heads in the 930 service. This is what Sunday after college football often looks like. Groggy, weary. 
and, and, and at the end of our, our favorite team's games, we watched someone, whether it was our team or otherwise, celebrate victory. Individuals were heaped with praise. We celebrated their natural ability. We praised the collective effort of the team. Now, I'm, I'm afraid sometimes this is what church has become in the Western world. But it, it ought not to be that way. We serve in our weakness so that the power of our great God is made manifest by his strength. I hope that you're serving in some capacity. I've given so much thought. I've maybe more thought to this issue, this, and, and getting people in the discipleship pipeline in Connect since becoming your pastor than maybe anything else to see to it that the body of our church is serving and connected and being actively discipled and actively discipling other people. And there, there are systems and programs and ways of looking at that and thinking through that, processes that can be very, very helpful. But I'm not sure that anything, anything, anything could take the place of just an organic move of God's spirit where God put in our heart an intense love for the body of Christ and a desire to win the loss that would compel us to serve, that we could not be kept back from serving the people of God and sharing with those who are outside of the family of faith. This morning, do you, do you know how it is that God has gifted you? What spiritual gifting do you bear? What unique contribution to the body of Christ might you make given the way God has gifted you as an individual? And then the natural follow-up is this. Are you leveraging that gift? Are you being a good manager, a good steward of the gifts that God has entrusted to you? Paul describes in Ephesians 4 a scenario in which we have all been called uniquely. And he says when, when we've all recognized this calling and we begin to utilize this gifting and we're pulling together in unison. We are in lockstep one with another. It's, it's then that spiritual growth and physical growth for the church is at its absolute best. Sometimes understanding more of God's word is not about a deeper investigation. It's about the application of what you've already come to discern. Sometimes there's no real missing ingredient other than just getting up and putting action to our words and doing what God has so clearly called us to do. Are you serving? If not, why not? You've been granted a supernatural ability to do beyond what you and your natural talent could ever hope or imagine. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, for this gifting. God, I, I, do, I do pray, I know this is a... Just a simple, straightforward, practical exhortation. But I, I, I do pray earnestly, God, that you would give us discernment, that we might identify our gifting, Lord, that we might focus in those areas. God, that in our weakness, you'd be made strong in our life and in the fellowship of our church. 
God, I pray for those peripheral members who are just on the outside sort of looking in for any guests that might be here in the hopes of having a, a come and see kind of experience here. I, I pray that they would hear that, that this is not what the church is about, God. I pray that we would resist that tendency to come and go, to, to fail, to be infringed upon by the work of the gospel in our life. Help us to know and to understand fully what it means to say that Jesus is the Lord over our life. God, we, we pray, I, I pray that we could all say with sincerity, Lord, that we could ask this dangerous prayer that your will would be done in our lives, even as it is in heaven, no matter how that looks for us, God. Father, thank you for what you've done for us and what you continue to do in us and through us. Lord, I, I pray that as we serve, that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.